Yeah. Um, so I sort of my story about how I got involved in politics, I guess, um, I was uh, in seventh grade when Hurricane Katrina happened and uh, the government can either really help people or it can really hurt people. And with Hurricane Katrina, I think we all saw that it hurt people, you know, it left people stranded on their houses during that time. And so I started learn to learn more that, well, the people who work in government are elected people. Um, and there, certainly there's a lot of people who are not elected who work in government, but they are the people who make the decisions um, for our country and our county and our state. And so when I went to college, I started um, getting involved in like the Michigan Democratic Party. And then um, Barack Obama was the first president that I could vote for. And being able to see, you know, a person of color run for that position, position made me realize like, oh, okay, I mean, things are changing, it's getting easier for uh, people of color to get involved. And so when I came back home, there was an open position on the township board. And I thought, what way to best combine my passion for helping my community, um, and also my love of politics. And so uh, we approached that campaign, like Barack Obama approached his presidential campaign. I mean, we did door to door, we did uh, bumper stickers, uh, parades, all these things that people don't do in local elections, uh, particularly for a township trustee. Uh, but it made a big impact and um, we, were, we were the uh, highest vote getter um, and I was running against only one other person that time but um, for never having had my name on the ballot I was able to beat um, all of the other people who had had their name on the ballot for a while and I think I owe it all just to hard work and the help of my family and friends and then served there for two years was planning on waiting for running for state rep but what I've learned in politics is that it's all about timing being at the right place at the right time and that the former state representative ran for state senate so if there it was open seat and there was only one other person running the individuals this time around running to replace me there was i think six of them so i i really had an advantage that i was only running against one person back in 2014 but i just figured i might as well try it didn't have anything to lose approached that campaign the same way we had uh, the township trustee and I had a lot of work to do because I'm from a community that's in the district, of course, but it was a smaller, one of the smaller communities. The largest is the city, and I didn't have any name recognition there uh, and not really a base necessarily to rely on. So just outworked my opponent, knocking doors all summer long. And then, yeah, and then was able to get reelected uh, for two terms after that. Wow. I have a question for you, Vanessa. I'm interested in the reaction of your peers, those around you, when you came up with this great thought, I'm going to get involved. I want to play the game. What was some of the reaction from your peers? So from my family, I will say they weren't really surprised. I've always been um, probably a pretentious kid, but that was my parents' own making. So um, I always tell the story of my mom, who um, very, come from a big family, very close family. Uh, growing up, my mom, um, she was very adamant that I saw myself in uh, – in environments that I might not normally see someone who looked like me. Small example, she worked at uh, Browner's Christmas Wonderland and she would buy ornaments that were for kids, but they were always white. So she would paint their faces brown before she gave them to me because they didn't, at that time, I think probably now they're a little more, more cultural, I guess, but at that time they didn't sell brown Christmas ornaments or brown Barbie dolls for that matter. Um, and she always bought books that were in Spanish for me, which she had to order off the internet. Cause again, that wasn't something that was popular in the early nineties. So I think my parents always told you know, brought me raised me to be very proud of who I was and to take chances and risks. And so I don't think they were surprised when I told them that I was running. Of course we gathered them all at my parents' house like we do for every big announcement and told them I was running for township trustee. I think a lot of them didn't know what that was, but they were ready to go and be behind me every step of the way. It was the same thing with state representative. They, they're not all very political, um, aside from, you know, having watched me get involved in politics, they are now, of course, but so it was a learning process, I think, for all of us about what does this mean to be involved in politics. For my peers, it was probably the same, like my former classmates. I was class president, really involved, um, uh, team captain, that sort of thing. So I think they weren't super surprised that I delved into those sort of leadership roles. Um, and then when I got to Lansing, <laughs> I think a lot of the reaction was, oh, so they have a large Hispanic community up there then. And um, I was like, no, not at all. I mean, that's pretty common when you enter uh, an environment where it's predominantly old white men. So that was kind of, it was nice to change their views of what Saginaw County was like. Um. 
what was it like uh, dealing with like local politics when you decided to run for these various positions? Yeah, it was a little bit of a mixed bag, I think, which is the case with Democratic Party right now, right? So I think there's a group of folks who really want to embrace um, the youth and they want to embrace people of color and then bring them in and let them lead. Um, and then there's some that are more establishment, for lack of a better word, who I think were like, well, why don't you wait? You know, why don't you serve? Um, you know, why don't you stay a township trustee for another six years before you run for something bigger? Why don't you wait and run for the Senate and then run for county? You know, so there was, it was a mix. There was people who were telling me to wait. And then there was a big group of supporters, though, that said, what do you have to lose? And I think that would, that's really just emblematic of what we see at the national level as well. Uh, but overall, I think mostly people have been supportive here in Saginaw County. As somebody who's watched, you know, Saginaw politics for pretty closely now for over 30 years. What was really surprising to me is how the old guard has underestimated you yeah. each time that you ran. When you ran for state representative, mm -hmm. nobody saw it coming. So that when you ran for city clerk, I was like, okay, well, they're gonna see you coming this time mm -hmm. and they better work hard because right. she's gonna outwork everybody. So I'm, you know, I'm a comment reader to my own detriment, I guess. So I went on your opponent's page after the election. Me too. Every other okay, every other comment was, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. I didn't. And it's like, she's been a state representative three terms running. Right. I mean, what didn't she see coming? And I guess, I mean, I guess that's kind of like par for the course, as they say, when it comes to yeah. women in politics. A lot of women are underestimated, especially women of color. But I guess I'd like to know from you, because I see the work that you do, I've seen all the people you helped with unemployment mm -hmm. and all this, all these other issues going on during COVID. I don't know how many people you helped. I don't know if you kept track of that. But why do you think that people always underestimate you? Right. I think, um, I think it's why everybody always estimates people that look like me because I'm young and brown and, you know, I don't have, I don't come from an affluent family or anything like that where, you know, Saginaw County, you know, my family didn't build Saginaw County or anything where a lot of these people have been here for generations. Sometimes it bothers me because I feel like, like Danny said, I work really hard. You know, it's not a nine to five for me. I take this job very seriously. And so when people are surprised, I'm like, really? I'm everywhere. But at the same time, it's kind of advantageous because then I surprise them and they think that they don't have to work. And so I just work behind the scenes and then I do really well, <laughs> which again, I did not expect to do as well as we did, but I do think it is testament to all the time that I put in both um, doing yeah. virtual work because everything yeah. changed with COVID, you know? And I've seen you campaign, so I did think you were going to win, but mm -hmm. I even underestimated the margin you were going to win by. Yeah. Because uh, if you saw your opponents, um, um, some of his campaign videos, it wasn't just some of the old guard. It was the entire old oh, guard yeah. that Everyone. supported him in videos. Yep. And I'm people that, you know, like I know that they don't know how to use social media at all. Even, yeah. you know, they were recording videos for him. And I thought that was at least going to make it close. Yeah. But the margin, the margin did surprise me. That's one thing that I wanted to say too. Like in my heart of hearts, I thought for sure, like Vanessa, that you were going to win. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that even made me question that a little bit is that all city and county officials were really behind your opponent. And right. I really like closely followed the race. Like I was on vacation watching um, the little forum that you guys yeah. had telling all my friends to be quiet. But a lot of the, the points that you brought up during that were just that you want to do extra and even like reading the comments, like Diane said, there are a lot of people who like just couldn't understand that you were just willing to, you know, put in that extra initiative. So what do you think that pushback is that people don't really quite grasp that you're willing to do things outside of the regular nine to five hours? I think there was a lot of people and you kind of, we talked about this before, Cecilia, who felt like, well, it's not broke, don't fix it, right? So the old clerk, there's something wrong with him. He's not a bad person. But I think that two things that I'm hoping that I spoke to to voters is that one, we could be doing so so much more. And if I earn a paycheck from the taxpayers, they deserve to have someone who is thinking innovatively about how we can service the county every single day. And I think that even speaks to some conservatives because they're very concerned about how our taxpayer dollars are used. And I think they want to get the, you know, the most for their dollar. And I think they saw the services I would provide, services that other county clerks already do. So it wasn't that these were impossible uh, wishful thinking things. These were things that can be done and aren't being done because we didn't have a clerk committed to action. We have a clerk who just kind of does what's always been done and does the bare minimum. 
but and even to that point though like i saw some people commenting on us saying well now is the you know it's very trendy to elect women and people of color or something some people were commenting and i was like yeah but six thousand you think six thousand people felt that way or did they actually just have seen my work before because i tell you what i will wait uh one in areas of saginaw county that are farmland they are very rural they're you know it's a trump signs for days and I want all of them, all, I want 80 out of 83, 80, no, 81 out of 83. And majority of them are rule. And so I don't think that they're into trends. I think that they hopefully saw my record and were and realized we deserve better. We deserve someone who's going to do more. So can you talk a little bit, you were talking before about your opponent. Can you talk a little bit about what your experiences were working within the DNC Mm-hmm. And if things like the social Democrats like came knocking on your door or what your relationship is with them, one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this podcast is how the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the two major national parties don't really represent us, right? I was listening yeah. to this other show today and they were talking about it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, you can still be a racist, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how your experiences were with that and how you see it? moving forward in your political career? Yeah. I mean, I see it changing even in the people who were representing to the state house. So when I came in in 2015, um, I think that even then, like the vote difference between bills, um, how Democrats voted and how Republicans voted was smaller because we had more moderates. Whereas now we're winning with progressives in very contested areas. I mean, there are some people who you know, won their uh, pre- won their district by only a percentage point or two, and they take very progressive votes. Votes that I was I would sometimes even mean being like, you might lose your next election with that one. But I think that that speaks. To, and they're all young. That's the other thing too. There's a lot of the young folks that are running right now that are just willing to put in the work. And I think that that their work ethic outshines the votes that they take for voters, if that makes sense. So like some voters are willing to look past the few things, if they're a conservative voter, the few things they may, that that candidate may vote for, that representative may vote for, because they work really hard. Um, and, and so I see it changing already that like now we're getting a lot more people that, um, a lot more new representatives that are younger and that are much more progressive than, than I think, frankly, even I was in 2015. But I think it's because the base is changing. And so now those of us who have already always sort of been more progressive feel more like, okay, we have people who support us in these efforts and support us in the legislation we're introducing um, more so than we did even, you know, certainly before Donald Trump was elected. First of all, I think your story is fascinating. I really do. Having grown up there, I understand just how outnumbered Mexicans are in Michigan, right? I mean, like it's, but I mean, I think it's kind of hard for people to really really grasp that like what a minority we are you know right. um and so you know the fact that you won I, th- I think is amazing there's a lot of what you're saying that really reminds me of the campaign that we ran in 2003 in Lansing to elect Tony Benavides to mayor and what it really comes down to and I, th- I think that you're absolutely right I think that all organizing all successful organizing mm-hmm. comes down to being willing to put in the work right mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you're if you're willing to get out and you're willing to knock doors and you're willing to make this thing, you know, like a focal point of your life, then, you know, you can win. I think that um, the other part that's really interesting, and I think it's certainly worth a, a conversation, is this whole idea of underestimating not just brown people, but in particular brown women, Latinas, right? And, you know, where people are just flabbergasted by by this success right. and kind of what i'm wondering I, i'd love to hear what you think vanessa i'd love to hear what some of the rest of you think too about this particular point is are we still at a point where we can use that underestimation to our political advantage in terms of like actually getting something like this done and what does it mean in other states or in other counties i would say other states for uh, people to kind of step out there and to do mm-hmm. that, you know, because I think one of the things that we're really lacking are the structures that are required to nurture Latino candidates, right? right. Like everybody says they want it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you were saying a second ago, they all want, they, they, they want to be cool with the kids, right? Mm-hmm. But then when the kids come and they start making them say their pronouns 
and, you know, use Latinx and, you know, then, right. you know, everybody's all like, wait a minute, I want to be cool with you, but I want to be cool with you on my terms, right? not on yeah. your terms, you know? So, I mean, I'm just kind of wondering what you, what you think about that. I'm kind of wondering what some of the rest of you think about that. I'm sure you have some similar ideas listening to this uh, very interesting story. Yeah, I think that we'll continue to be underestimated for a while still. But I do think that like this, my race in Saginaw County was, I, I in my opinion, I think it will be an eye opener for folks. Because again, the person I ran against had been in office for so long. And there's just a lot of people who are entrenched in county politics. And I my hope is to really raise the bar on all of them. Because if they see me working, I think they're all going to feel pressure to actually do more in their jobs than what they're doing right now. Um, but we do absolutely need to build our bench because like in Saginaw County, there's, I don't know if I can think of another uh, Latino elected official. And I guess Dan or Celia, correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, and part of that, I kind of take it my own fault. I should be sort of working with someone. We did have someone who, re- uh, there was a woman who had replaced me on the township board and she's a Latina, um, but she recently had to step away from that a little bit. But I think that that should be a larger focus. One thing we've talked about in Lansing I'm part of the uh, Michigan Legislative Latino Caucus, and we've talked about creating another arm of our organization that just does campaign side things. So the caucus itself can only do policy work, but we could have like a sister organization that really sort of prepares uh, candidate Latino candidates to run for office. And so that's something that we want to do. We had been talking about it earlier this year and like everything else, COVID happened, but really started preparing people to run for local office. And, and not that you have to have to do local office before state office, but it does help. I mean, it certainly helps with name recognition, showing people that you're willing to put in the work, but getting them to run for city council and for school board and all of these things. And I think that there there's more people interested in that sort of thing now uh, than there was before, I guess, because I think politics, if Donald Trump has done nothing else, it's he's put politics right in your face every single day. And so people are now realizing that politics absolutely is impacts your life from cradle to grave from the morning you wake up in the morning till you go to bed at night. Something has been, a decision has been made by a person in an elected office. And so I do think, like I said, nothing else, he's, people are realizing that they have to play an active role, whether that's running campaigns or being the elect, the candidate themselves. There's only two others in the entire region, Saginaw, Bay City, Midland, we call it the Great Lakes Bay region. Mm-hmm. Um, Mount Pleasant now too. Um, you have James Moreno, who's the county commissioner, who's also on the lead state board. Um, and then Matt Fallon, who is with, uh, is it basically schools? School board. Public? Yeah, school yep. board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's about it <laughs> for the entire Great Lakes Bay region. So one of the things that we've talked about, we had a conversation a while back, you know, we had the legislative day that lead and uh, mm-hmm. the caucus did together. And one of the things I know you're passionate about is trying to educate the electorate, especially mm-hmm. the Latino electorate. Right. So that they understand better how the system works, how mm-hmm. policy is made, how legislature works. And one of the things we kind of talked about um, on this podcast is just the disengagement between the political reality that or the political system and mm-hmm. our community in terms of wanting to get involved or maybe understanding how that system works. I think that people would feel more empowered and be more apt to get involved and advocate for things if they understood better how the system works. Right. Because if you haven't, you know, if you haven't studied it or you haven't had the opportunity to go to college and study it, I mean, where do you get the education on how that kind of thing works? Right. You know, how can we develop as a community? Um, I guess, you know, what have you given that more thought is my question. Mm-hmm. How do we educate the entire community on how the system works? And that was one of the big things that I ran on. And I think that some of my um, colleagues who are already elected at different levels in Saginaw County didn't necessarily love, but I talked to voters about how the more people know who their elected official officials are and what they do, the easier it is to put pressure on those elected officials to do what we want them to do. And so like, you know, like, for example, if we have protests, that's great but we have to follow those up with pressure on city council to do X, Y, Z because city council oversees the police department, for example, it's a big issue we're all talking about right now. Um, or we had an issue with a animal control shelter here in Saginaw County. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you can post all day long on Facebook, but if you don't follow up with 
lots of people contacting their county commissioner, who is an elected person who makes decisions about the animal shelter, then it kind of falls on deaf ears. And so in running for clerk, I explained to people that during non-election years, that would be a big piece of my um, platform is educating folks about who represents us at all levels of government. Because the more people know who those, the more people who know who those people are, the more likely we are to actually put pressure on the right people at the right time to do what we want them to do. And so, like I said, a lot of my, uh, a lot of the people in those positions probably didn't love that, but, um, but as an elected person, that's our job. I mean, you yeah. know, to take the people good. People don't the always best. love the truth. You know, they don't I mean, know. And I think in Saginaw like County, and this is probably true for a lot of other places, there are a lot of folks that um, have been able to do the bare minimum and get by always doing the bare minimum. And, uh, I, and so campaigning I think you're again. being kind. Saying this, <laughs> to be honest with you, you're being too kind. In Saginaw, we have two of the lowest uh, precincts in, in terms of turnout in the entire state and the entire right. country. Okay, well, I mean, if you're there for 20 years and don't do anything about that, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, that's not even the bare minimum to me. Right. Um, I, think the, I think this speaks to uh, how we build political power, you mm -hmm. know, locally, how we build political power within Latino communities, mm -hmm. Yeah. locally and nationally and we've been talking about how there isn't really a, a, a national voice leading mm -hmm. latino latina latinx chicano chicana right. voices right it's mm -hmm. happening more at the local level and you know with uh the people really you know not going to vote or being afraid of going to vote feeling intimidated right um, the Michigan, I looked at 2010 census says it's about 5% of the population. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you see, you know, based on your experiences, mm -hmm. how do you see the development of that power within that 5% of the population of mm -hmm. Michigan? And also, I'm looking forward to see what the 2020 census is going to say, but right. then also really taking into consideration how, and I'm enumerating right now on the ground as a census, at the with the census. And mm -hmm. you can, we are in a rush because the pandemic has stopped it. And now there's only, I think, two, maybe three months mm -hmm. to go on the streets to count people. And I went yesterday and I counted a lot of Latinos from what appeared to be a gentrified neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you build that power locally and not mm -hmm. just for you but for for anybody in the podcast that you know can can bring some ideas about it well right. just real just real quick about the census they're already writing news articles that are are saying that the census is not going to be an accurate count i mean they're already writing them right now and so it's uh and i think that you know a lot of that has to do with um the population explosion in the latino community i mean we were i mean you know I also read another article. It was about the census, and it said that we've, you know, we've climbed past 60 million at this mm -hmm. point, right? Which is adding like another almost, well, another 10 million from the last. In, that's another 10 million in 10 years. Um, if you look at everybody 15 and under in the country, every every person in the country, the majority of them are now non-white. Yes. Yeah. In, in Texas, in Texas, the the under 18, like the child or the, the, what we would call children, it's already over. It's already the majority. It's already, you know, done. Yes. In, in the U.S., the largest population of elementary school children are of Latino background. And here in New York, where there are about a million K through 12, pre-K pre through 12, the vast majority are Latino. Yeah, it's been that same way in California for, I don't know how long, but we've been the majority here for so long. I think it's, like, so interesting, especially in California, because, like, we say that we're this majority, but we still have so little political power, and we have so little, um, like, visible, like, political people to, like, look towards and to see as our leaders. And you would think California as someone, as a state that has so many Latinx folks that we would put forth someone that um, could be a leader in this. So that's why I want to hear then. So what, why what do you can think that happens? Do, right. What, what right. can we do to build our political power in Michigan, in California, in New York, 
-hmm. in Texas where we have all these numbers, you know, going up? What, what do we think? What can we do? I think that a lot of it comes, like, look at the Latina and all of the, the levels that there are to, to overcome to become an elected official. Like, within the Democratic Party alone, we have this wide spectrum of political beliefs from conservative Dems to, you know, very, very progressive Dems. And then we have, you know, the established community that is within there that, like in Vanessa's race, have worked together to, to keep each other in power. And then within our own community, we have, of course, you know, we have Latino men who who try to, you know, keep those established barriers there, whether knowingly or unknowingly, and then where they fit in along that political spectrum. So I think a big part of it is we ourselves are not open, um, and, and we, we do, unfortunately, still play a big part. And even with my own experiences in Saginaw County and, and keeping that you know, power structure and power dynamic in place. Oh, men want to yeah, keep I it. Wanna... They know they're keeping their power. They don't want to release that power. What, how do you whatever through. color man, they're not giving up their power. How do you yeah. run them over? How do you run <laughs> them sure. over? I, I think there's a lot of ways, but I do think it starts with local office because um, we have a system and a, a lot of candidates use it where we can track um, how often people participate in elections. And so what we do or what we've done is look at like, who did I bring along the way? So like from, from when I first ran for township trustee to my races as state representative, we can look and see that they started voting in 2012 or they started voting in 2014 when I first ran. And then they kept up with me those three years and followed me to this most recent election in 2020. And some of them, like I said earlier, might only vote for me. But for the most part, if you get a ballot in front of you, you're going to vote your whole ballot. And so we were able to turn these Latinos who may have been infrequent voters or non-voters into voters because they had not seen somebody who looked like them or who represented their community running for office before. Um, and so in, in tracking that, we did do that. And I think that we could do, you know, that's one way we sort of create power within our local communities is by is by continuing to do that. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to what's after this, but, um, you know, I would hope that I'm able to continue to build that base and take those those voters forward with me. And that's at least how we build political power. And um, but we have to get people to run for office first. We have to. Yeah, I think, our, you know, family. And yeah, friends. going back to what Cecilia said, I think it's like super important to build ourselves in our community first and have an infrastructure. I know you were talking about earlier of like, you know, supporting other Latinas that are running, but not only like just support the Latina that's running, but also support the Latina that you want to see run, you know, start from having the basic ground, starting from pulling from college age students and being like, you know, there's the Democratic Party in on campuses and the Republican Party on campuses all across the country. And, you know, those those at least from my experience, those end up being majority white, um, yeah. majority male. And so if the DNC can like, you know, if we want progressive candidates and if like progressive people can pull from these college A students, which like especially right now, we have so much drive and so much will to change everything. You know, we are the people that are on the front lines of the protests and of, you know, people getting arrested for protesting and all these things and it's like you know, we have this momentum right now and we don't have the infrastructure at all to support them. And I think that's huge going forward on like, how can we help people go? Because like, you know, the people that I know that are interested in politics are almost exclusively white men. And the people that are interested in organizing and are helping like support our community are almost exclusively Latina women or Latinx folks. And so it's like, you know, there's this huge disparity between like, you know, organizing as well as just running for office. And I think we have right. to bridge that gap some way. And I think, you know, mentoring folks into being like, okay, so I'm in office, how can I help you? Like go for it. And I know um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about it and like she was campaigning and reaching out to folks through Animal Crossing. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, so if people have these resources, you know, and if these people are exclusively like, Latinx folks, then we should reach them where they're at rather than like try to like pull people to where we want them to be. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right, Carolina. One one hundred percent. I I think the I think that um what what we have to do is we we have to have that 
conversation, the one that you're talking about, and then we have to have the next part of it, which is what do those institutions really look like, right? Like, you know, we know that there are a number of third parties in this country, but we have convinced ourselves that voting for a third party is a waste of our vote, right? But the reality is, is that it's only a waste if we continue to let it be a waste. And and this isn't necessarily even me saying, you know, people should join a third party, although I think that people should join whatever party they want to. But what I am saying is this, is that both Republicans and Democrats have had hundreds of years to develop uh, Latino um, candidates, Chicano candidates, um, and they have failed to do that. And there is, I don't think, any reasonable, we, we shouldn't have any reasonable expectation that that will change immediately in the future. Yeah, it Regardless, doesn't serve their interest. It does not serve they? their interest, right. right? And so It's white men. Why would it serve their interests? Well, yeah, it's it's not just white men, <laughs> but they got <laughs> they got their big piece of the pie, that's for sure. But I mean, it's a well, I mean, let's be fair. White women have the same stake in it that white men do. And I mean, really, if you well, if you if you think about it, think about it in terms of affirmative action. You know, the number one recipient group of benefits from affirmative action were white women. I mean, they're they're the ones that really benefit from it. And that means in my in my mind, that means the number two beneficiary group is white men, because white women usually marry white men. Yeah, I agree with you that it's um that it's not in their interest to 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 do that, but it is in our interest to do it. And so I think that part of what we have to really think about is, you know, how do we do that? And I don't think it's about like trying to convince people about our culture or Mm -hmm. like, you know, we're good people or, you know, this and that. I think it's about what Vanessa was talking about earlier. It's about hard work and it's about getting out and knocking on doors and walking the streets and making sure that we are training people to do that. For those of us who have done it, we have to be training people to do that. And, you know, if we're not, then we can't reasonably expect that we're going to build our bench. I'm going to grab another phrase that the sister used earlier because I like that one. I wrote that one down because we should be building our bench, right? Right. And so, yeah. yeah, No, go ahead. The Democratic Party thing when I was in college was the same thing experience for me that like I went to meetings and there wasn't really anybody that looked like me. And I, so I didn't really engage with them at that point. Um, The Sacramento County Democratic Party locally has been, has been good to me. um, But uh what I really just came down to engaging with people, my, my culture. Like I started, the only reason I became a Latino studies major is because I accidentally took so many courses that had something to do with Latino studies. I was able to get a degree out of it. Uh, But that's how I found like a group of people that have supported me ever since. And um, it's the same thing back home. You know, I, I, the Democratic party never, I would say shunned me or pushed me away, but they didn't necessarily like, Oh, you'd be a perfect candidate, you know, embrace me either. Um, but my home, my family did. And, and, you know, like I said, the Latino people here have done that for me. And even like, because I am more liberal or I don't, don't even call it liberal, but, um, I'm pro-choice for example. So there's a lot of Latinos who are not, but they're willing to look past that to still vote and support me. Um, because again, it's just not common and, and they're willing to, to support their culture, I guess. So if I can follow up on that phrase of building our political bench and in building these coalitions, the big coalition right now is also the black and brown coalition. And I know in Michigan, those are, that is one of the groups that can truly be an ally. So I'm interested in what has been the reaction and the support you have received from the African-American community? It's been really good. Um, I think at first it, took some time because the, uh, the, my, so my predecessor was an African-American woman. Um, and there was a white male before her, but then before him, it was an African-American man. And so I think there was a hope that perhaps we would get, they would get another black candidate. But when I ran in 2014 for state representative, I ran against an older black man. And so, um, I think what it came down to again, though, is that he didn't work as hard. He was really banking on the fact that his people would turn out for him just because 
he had been there a while. And I think probably because he was African-American too. Um, but it's a combination of that, of that hard work, working for people's vote. Um, even if, you know, even if they are, if it was black people voting for me, um, but no, they've been really supportive. Um, it would be interesting if I've, uh, well, I mean, I, I ran against a black candidate in 2014. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if that would change if like, my opponent in the county clerk's race had been a black woman, for example. Um, that would have been an interesting dynamic. Fortunately, I didn't have to worry about that. But um, one of the things about the 2014 race that was interesting too the the, the name, the mm -hmm. person that you run, ran against, that name in the African American community and the white community is one of the most well known yep. names mm -hmm. in our town, Braddock. Right. Um, you know, the entire Charles Braddock, Norma Braddock, Sheila Braddock, mm -hmm. Braddock are all people very well known and connected in the community. Right. But I think what happened there is mm -hmm. Norman really pissed a lot of people off when he, um, when it kind of came to light that he used to be like the black Republican chair <laughs> in Saginaw yeah. for a little while. And then all of a sudden he's a Democrat and he was part of some group of black Republicans for Obama mm -hmm. or something like that. And yeah. I don't think people really, you know, took to that very well. Right. Um, so your timing was amazing. Um, is because I don't think he had any plans to work that election other than to use his name either. Um, so to see you step in at that right time and I'll work him, I mean, it was it uh, it made me really happy to see because yeah. you know, and, and the other thing you, you mentioned earlier about how about the Saginaw Democratic Party, mm -hmm. I think most local Democratic parties, and this is definitely true for Saginaw, they like winners. They yeah. like people who are going to go out there and work and win, mm -hmm. and they don't have to do much. You know, they don't have to do a lot of work. I mean, they're not, you know, um, the Democratic Party isn't organized to win elections. No. You know, they're organized to uh, name a platform or list a platform. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things, I'm on a committee here in, um, in, in my area with Dan Kildee, who's the fifth congressional representative, and we, we were meeting quarterly before COVID. And uh, I was trying to talk to him about, you know, voter registration drives and, you know, the lack of them and whatever. And that's something that came from his own mouth. He was like, look, I don't know, you know, what things are all over the country, but in Michigan, the Democratic Party is just a name. It's a name and a platform. That's all you're ever going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. So I think when we have these conversations about the DNC, we need to be a little bit more realistic about what we think that they are because they're, they're nothing more than a name and a platform. We're never going to, um, I guess, be able to properly advocate and develop our community um, with an organi organization that's le that loosely organized, if that makes sense. Right. It makes sense. I think, you know, I just want to reiterate, I think the other thing that we really need to always keep in mind is that if we're really going to talk about building power, then we really have to talk about how we're going to do that because nobody else is going to do that for us. Right. It's yep. just, you know, it's really that simple. I mean, whether we decide to do it through a democratic, uh, through the democratic party, or we decide to do it through a third party, or we decide to form our own party that like, you know, represents the interest of 60 million people in this country. I mean, that's a, that's a substantial portion of the population. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've got to start making these decisions. You know, we look at, I think that this year has been a really good example of sort of the indecisive situation that, that we've gotten ourselves into, right? Like we look earlier at the terrible things that were happening when uh, George Floyd was killed and then the, um, the riots that happened afterwards, you know, and we saw, uh, you know, all across social media, I don't know about your guys's but in mind, you know, lots of people really questioning why, you know, Latinos, Chicanos weren't rioting because of the number of um, brown people that had been killed, you know, by the police. Right. And, you know, and so you got to kind of ask yourself that same question. But in some ways, it just comes down to political will. I mean, we at this moment, we're still struggling with who we are, really, I think, more and more. You know, and as we as as the population grows, and it was um, Cecilia that said it earlier, and I think said it very well. Man, 
we have a, one crazy range of opinions in this community. I know that Juan Carlos and I were texting each other earlier about some situations that we're encountering with some different students. And, it, and it's the same thing, you know? So I think it's also has to do with the way that everybody sort of thinks that their idea is like the way that everybody else should think. And, you know, they don't under also understand that when you're involved in party politics like this, that it really is about the platform, right? The party has a platform and we say, okay, we agree with this platform. We may not agree with each other individually about certain things. Like the sister said, she's pro-choice, which, which I am also. And you know that there are people who voted for her because they're willing to look past that because of these other things, right? Mm -hmm. That's party politics. You know, right. and so, but when everybody's just focused in on that, on, on their opinion, then, you know, this is, this is kind of where we, this is where we get to as a, as a community. So thinking about how to break free from that and helping also our community to understand that this is about a, a bigger vision, right? This is about power. This is about party. This is about building these sort of uh, nationwide consensus that will help us to shape an agenda that stops children from being put in cages, that stops people from being deported who've lived here their whole lives, right? That stops um, the uh, wage inequities that are happening, not just between uh, men and women, but that are also happening between white and non-white communities. I mean, there's, there's big issues here, prison, school to prison pipeline, all of that, you know? And so oh. thinking about that, that's, I think, the role that party plays. Maria, did yeah, I wanted to mention too that part of the hard work is to identify uh, pipelines, right? So creating uh, politi political-minded uh, individuals, um, and I can think of right now that's being hurt because of COVID. Um, uh, Telemann, the agency I work for, has a uh, Head Start uh, have have migrant Head Start centers. But within those, they have policy councils. And the only people that are allowed on the policy council are the parents of the children who go to that Head Start Center. Um, and through that, uh, we've been able to identify some individuals that want to grow as individuals, want to develop new skills, and bring them on to Telemann as employees. Because who better than the people that we serve, right? So that, uh, what I have found is when people start um, being put in the, on, on the spot to say, you're a parent of this child, you have a vested interest in this child's education, and we value your opinion, you need to be at the table. Bringing these people to the table, not just to the larger political um, uh, positions, but also your local bodies that make decisions that uh, provide uh, uh, food assistance, provide the basic necessities, you know, having those people at those tables, believe it or not, politicizes them. They have to because they're sitting there reading budgets and reading, well, who approved this and what pol political uh, party, you know, supports uh, stronger this, 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 uh, um, our, our community who is a low income community, right? Uh, and who's putting the money into the affluent communities? So it's these politicians who make these decisions for us, right? And, um, so um, there is a lot of um, uh, momentum in those groups to um, also write letters to uh, politicians to vote uh, in favor of whatever the, the people want in that community. But I think building pipelines, or, or not even building pipelines, for identifying those pipelines that are there already. And I know in Saginaw, I don't know how much the Hispanic Leadership Institute played a part in some of these um uh, elections that happened in Saginaw or not, or did they not, you know, because um, just building the momentum within those groups and encouraging people of color and having solidarity between people of color. If I'm in a community, um, say like in Benton Harbor, the larger community there is African American, and in, in working with those individuals and saying, hey, you can run for office, hey, you can have your own small business, but you need to be politicized. You need to understand some of the um, uh, right now with COVID-19, a lot of uh, people of color who are small business owners have not applied for the PPP uh, grant funds that are out there, right? Because nobody's, there isn't a cohesive um, a, a business group or business development center that's encouraging to, to apply for those things. 
but all those things I think that uh, play a large part in us electing those individuals. Also, right now more than ever, um, this political atmosphere has shown us that we're ready for a third party or a fourth party. That, you know, there's no other time than than now that we need to come out with that second or third party or whatever. But um, I think that um, the people understanding that it's the right time to change this. It, we have been for a long time, but it isn't until the potential dictatorship uh, scare. Oh, now we're ready, right? But uh, uh, yeah, so uh, who more than this group that understands the, the, the pipelines, right? From school to prison pipelines, um, especially the increasing amount of um, young ladies of color who are ending up in detention centers for truancy, for um, just things like that, right? That's, you know, uh, identifying those individuals and having them understand that the reason that they're going from, uh, you know, school to the, to the detention center, there has, to, there has been some political laws uh, playing against them. So, yeah. And I think some of that is by design, like going off of what Yuma said, Maria, and what you said, Todd, about not having that political force yet and we've been here forever right and i think that it is it's by design like why why is it that we don't right and i think it's because we're not controlling the narrative and there are organizations that exist they're just not looking out for our best interests they're looking out for their own right and and i know i've i've talked about them before but you know, I look at Justice Democrats, right? The executive director of Justice Democrats, and they're the ones who supported AOC and Rashida Tlaib, right? And she's Latina, right? Alexandra Rojas is her name, right? And and they're doing really great work. And if you look on their website, they have all these like local um, races that they're supporting, that they are supporting priorities that are important to people with our backgrounds, right? when we're talking about like a living wage and housing and education and employment, right? It's healthcare, it's things like that. And I know we've talked about before, what are the things, what are the priorities that regardless of where we are on the spectrum, whether conservative to most progressive, what are the things that are important to us and what are we banding around, right? Even on that spectrum, and then regionally, nationally, like we're all over the, we're everywhere, right? This one, <laughs> there was this one woman that I work with and she's in fundraising. She's this white woman and she was making this comment about students at Baruch and, and she was, I made it, there was a student in particular that we had and she was from Alaska, right? And she's like, wow, she's from Alaska? And I said, yes, we're everywhere, <laughs> right? So, so I, I think it's, really looking at who's creating the narrative, right? Looking at social media, looking at you know, regular media like a CNN or any of the bigger networks and really seeing who's there by design, controlling, manipulating the narrative about people who look like us, right? And, and to Alex, you know, I, I've kind of put some thought into this and I think that we never get to that, that that part where we're pushing our agenda with, with certain politicians who want our votes is because we're too easily fascinated when they just come around, you know, when they show up at these events because they want our votes during an election year. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember this, Vanessa, but I got into it pretty bad with Ken Horn, you know, mm -hmm. like we got into this whole Facebook thing and it, it got pretty ugly. Um, but I called him out and I was like, okay, you know, you introduced Donald Trump and, at, in Birch Run when he came to visit Saginaw County. Um, I was out there protesting with a lot of other people from Flint and Saginaw. And, you know, you show up at all of our events, you know, you eat our food, you eat our tacos, and you're buddy-buddy. Right. But when it comes down to a guy who has said what he has said about Mexicans, you're going to introduce him? You know, I don't care who you vote for, but, I mean, you don't – you can't have it both ways, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and what I saw from our community was a lot of people in Saginaw, Latinos, still supported Ken Horn after that. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and after that, honestly, I wrote all those people off. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'm not going to work with you anymore. I'm not going to do anything with you. You do your own thing. And what I noticed when 
you were running up against your last opponent, your opponent called a lot of the people that I know and have worked mm-hmm. with and had very personal conversations like, why is Vanessa doing this? You know, why, what, you know, don't you guys support me? And I had conversations with those same people that, you know, I guess I could tell you about now. And it's like, no, I don't support him at all. I support Vanessa. And look what she's done. And tell me one thing that he's done. And I, and I just don't get that with our community. You know, we, right. we, we were so satisfied with just seeing their face at an event. We never get to that point where we ask about the issues that are important to us. So we're, we're almost at an hour. Let's, let's let Vanessa have the last word. And if you could, you know, if you want to respond to what Danny said, that's fine. If you don't, that's also fine too. But we're, I mean, we're getting, we're getting close to an hour. Yeah. Um, so that's been the most frustrating thing. And I, I wonder how much, and I, I don't have my degree in psychology or anything like that, but like how much is that just like traditional sexism that like we see because so my counterpart in the Senate is a white, older white male. And for the last six years, I have always had to work harder to prove myself when he's been accepted by everybody. You know, we can give presentations and he'll um, talk, he'll sidetrack and tell this really nice story about his family and not ever answer the question. And people are impressed and happy with him. Whereas I have to come prepared with policy points and examples and, you know, do my research just for people to take me seriously. And that's also kind of, Dan, what you're talking about. It's not, it wasn't just white people that have treated me like that. It's also some people in our own community who I just felt didn't take me as seriously. I think because I, I was a woman, like what, and I was a young woman that just, I always have to work harder than they do. Um, and so I think that's what I saw in, in those older Latinos who didn't support me and supported my opponent or were willing to open their arms for our Senator. Like you said, Dan, uh, just because I don't know. I don't know. They take it more seriously, but I guess the last point I'll make too is like, even though, no, as much as I have talked about how, you know, brown people really um, have stood by me and supported me, um, they're also not, you know, they're not, they're smart people. They're, they're not going to just vote for somebody who's Latino just because they put their name on a ballot. They, they were willing to vote for me, I think, um, because they saw my hard work in addition to, you know, I just happen to also be a Latino. So I don't want to make it seem like our people only come out to vote for me just because I'm brown. Um, I had to also work for their vote too. Um, but, but I think that it engaged them in a way that they hadn't been engaged, um, at least because they saw somebody who was a Latina. Um, and I think, you know, like I said, I think we build, we focus on our own, like, and it's like what we've always done, right? So we always bring somebody behind us with us forward. Um, I remember when I first met Cecilia, um, I had nothing to do with her and her political organizing. But when I first met her last year, two years ago now, I was like, oh my God, there's another one of me out there like in Saginaw County because there's not a lot of Latinos that are involved in politics, especially not women. And um, so when I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh, we could do more. I can do more of that work here. And that was like one thing I said, like you always attribute like, um, you know, your political involvement and like what made you think that you could do it to like President Barack Obama. And I was, you know, as a young high schooler and I was like always really interested in politics mostly because I went to a primarily white institution my whole life. And then I saw you run for office and um, always saw you in the community. And then finally, like, formally met you when we worked together last summer. And I was like, well, now, you know, my dream to, I spoke to you about that to run for office in the the nearest future. And to me, that's just, you know, and I aspire to do the same thing and, like, help some of my younger friends, you know, become more political and involved. That's all we have for today. My name is Carolina Sanchez, and on behalf of the Dysfunctionals, we want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to leave a comment on our podcast site. Just search for The Reality Dysfunction on Podbean, or like us on the Reality Dysfunction Facebook page. Best of all, share this episode. It is literally the gift that keeps on giving. We really want to hear from you. This is The Reality Dysfunction. Saginaw, Michigan I grew up in a house in Saginaw Bay My dad was a poor, hard-working Saginaw fisherman Too many times he came home with too little pay I love the girl 
In Saginaw, Michigan The daughter of a wealthy, wealthy man But he called me That son of a Saginaw fisherman And not good enough To claim his daughter's hand Now I'm up here in Alaska Looking around for gold Like a crazy fool I'm a-digging In this frozen grounds of cold But with each new day I pray I'll strike it rich And then I'll go back home And claim my love To Saginaw, Michigan I wrote my love I wrote my love In Saginaw, Michigan I said, honey, I'm a-coming home, please wait for me. And you can tell your dad, I'm coming back a richer man. I hit the biggest track in Klondike history. Her dad met me, Her dad met me. in Saginaw, Michigan. He gave me a great big party with champagne Then he said, son, you wise, young, ambitious man Will you sell your father in a lawyer Klondike claim? Now he's up there in Alaska Digging in the cold, cold ground The greedy fool is looking for the gold I've never found It serves him right and no one here is missing him Least of all the newlyweds of Saginaw, Michigan For the happiest man and wife in Saginaw, Michigan He's ashamed